Please do turn back to John's Gospel with me, and we'll pick up from chapter 2, verse 23, page 887 in the Church Bibles. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, born from above, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you lot do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Well, let's bow our heads. All our knowledge, sense and sight lie in deepest darkness shrouded till your spirit breaks our night with the light of truth unclouded. Loving Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. So come, we pray, and speak life to us for Jesus' sake. Amen. The face seems so familiar You try not to stare too obviously, but you're sure you know him. Or is it that he reminds you of someone? Your old neighbor, your grown-up son. And slowly the realization comes creeping up on you. He looks so familiar because he could be you. 
Well, John is one of those writers who is a genius with character work. He gives us far fewer of the big set-piece miracles than the other Gospels, but in their place, we get to watch these extended scenes where Jesus interacts with one individual, and the details are so sparse. We know barely anything about this man, Nicodemus, and the life he lived 2,000-odd years ago, and yet somehow in telling his story, John manages to hold up a mirror to all mankind. He is not a pantomime baddie. Yes, he's a Pharisee. We're used to thinking of them, aren't we, as the baddies. Not only that, but chapter 3, verse 1, he's a ruler among the Jews, a member of the Sanhedrin, the council that ultimately condemns Jesus to death. But he's a far more rounded individual than that. We meet him very briefly two more times in this book, and we never learn for sure whether he becomes a Christian believer or not. John wants to leave us guessing. What we do get, though, is every impression that he is a fair, kind, decent man. He's brave, braver than people give him credit for. He speaks up for justice later on, arguing that Jesus at least be given a hearing. He takes the risk and the expense of providing a proper burial for this teacher he once met in the dead of night. He's extremely learned and well-taught. Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel, verse 10. And John takes pains to paint him as a representative, doesn't he? Not just of the Jewish authorities who reject Jesus, but of those many in Jerusalem who saw Jesus' signs and in some sense believe in his name. Jesus knew all people, verse 25. He needed no one to bear witness about man because he knows exactly what is in man. And then verse one, here comes one man. Not just a Pharisee, but a man of the Pharisees. It's a deliberate link, isn't it? And just like the crowds, verse three, he has seen the signs that Jesus does and he thinks he knows something about Jesus. He's drawn to Jesus, drawn to come and ask more. And yet he comes stating what he knows and he leaves utterly baffled, knowing nothing at all. You see, Nicodemus is a mirror. He was a real, rounded, historical human being, but he's also a representative of all human beings, here to show us something of the human condition itself, our own human nature. The first thing we need to learn, if ever we hope to become a believer in Jesus Christ, and the thing we need to remember about ourselves, if we already are, and the thing we need to recognize in everyone who we long with all our hearts would come to faith. So let's brave a good, honest look in the mirror then and meet Nicodemus. John has three very simple Christian truths to teach us this morning that we have to come to terms with as deeply as we can. Here is what Jesus himself sees in the heart of man. Whoever we are, the night claims us. Only Christ's spirit can change us. So cry 
to the one sent to save us. Firstly, from chapter 2, verse 23 through to 3, verse 3, whoever we are, the night claims us. John is teaching us a universal truth here about human beings. Our hearts and minds and wills are darker than we know. And so everyone, even the most well-taught and religious person, everyone needs a whole new nature if they are ever going to embrace the truth and find life in Jesus. Jesus is still in Jerusalem, and it seems in verse 23 like his public ministry has got off to a brilliant start. After all, people are doing exactly what John has told us they have to do to become children of God. They see the signs, and they believe in Jesus' name. It looks very promising. And yet that antipathy towards faith based on signs that we started to see last week in the temple gets spelt out even more explicitly now. There's believing and there's believing. And it's not always clear what the difference is. They believe in Jesus' name, but verse 24, Jesus doesn't believe in them. It's the same words. There's something about their faith, their hearts, that he will not entrust himself to. And the reason is one of the great Bible truths that we mustn't gloss over. Jesus knows all people, you and me and everyone. He knows us. He knows exactly what we are, exactly what's in our hearts. It's worth remembering we are not like that. We cannot see into other human hearts. And the judgments we make on them, we will get wrong again and again. And so we have to take people at their word and on the evidence we see in their lives and we treat each other with charity. But even if we can't tell the difference, he can. In this gospel, Jesus looks right into the soul of every human being he encounters. It's a truth we need to keep facing up to. It means there is no use whatsoever in being anything other than completely honest with him about where our hearts are. There's no point hiding or pretending. He knows. Well, what Jesus sees is that human beings are deeply undependable and deeply self-deceiving. And it's a shock because the particular human beings he's talking about are the people who believe, the ones who want to believe, who in some sense identify as Jesus trusters. But it is so often the case that we see something in Jesus, which means we can't reject him outright. In this case, it's the miraculous signs. They're drawn to him. They can't think of themselves as enemies of the gospel. And so they believe in his name in their own way. But they'll never quite throw in their eternity with him. Better to keep a bit of church, but not too much. While John is setting the scene here rather ominously for Jesus' public ministry, it looks promising, but humanly, it will be a massive failure. The response to Jesus Christ will be deep, dug in unbelief. And so we're left with the question, what hope is there? 
How could anyone like that become a true Christian? And that's when we're introduced to Nicodemus, one such man. Is there any significance to the fact that he comes to Jesus by night? Well, at one level, that's nothing out of the ordinary. People often talk and debate over religious things deep into the night, especially people like this. We love to do it. And yet it's a detail John reminds us about when we meet Nicodemus again. This was the man who came by night. And night in this book is almost a minor character in itself. The darkness and the night. Think of chapter 13. John says that receiving a morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out to betray his Lord. And it was night. Jesus has come as a light shining from heaven into the darkness. And that is exactly what is happening here. Nicodemus comes by night because he belongs to the night. Here is a committed, morally upright Jew, a decent man, a well-taught Bible scholar. He is drawn to Jesus. And yet for all that, he belongs to the darkness. He also believes in Jesus in his own kind of way. When he says, we know, he's speaking there for Israel, isn't he? For the many, we know that if you do these signs, you must be some kind of true prophet. And so he's come for a chat as one Bible teacher to another to find out what teaching this prophet Jesus has come to bring. But Jesus replies in such a blunt way that it is shocking. He doesn't respond to what Nicodemus said. He goes straight to the need that he sees right down in his heart. Truly, truly, I say to you. It's how a prophet might utter an oracle from heaven, isn't it? A phrase like that. And it puts what Jesus says on a totally different order to anything Nicodemus thinks he knows. What Jesus is about to say is the expert advice from the one who knows the human heart better than anyone. He knows that Nicodemus doesn't need a chat about religious things. He needs a challenge to his very being. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you want to participate, Nicodemus, in the great wedding feast of the Messiah, you need to become a whole new person. No amount of discussion or interest or insight or love of spiritual things can get you there. No amount of commitment or striving after holiness. No, the problem is who he actually is right down at his core heart and mind and will. He belongs to the darkness. Jesus is going to tell him that his heart needs to be washed. He's going to show him that his mind is unable to know anywhere near as much as he thinks he knows of spiritual things. And his will, his ability to choose, is fundamentally bound and corrupt. He's drawn to Jesus. He wants faith. But look ahead to verse 11. His deepest problem isn't even his understanding. It's that he will not receive Jesus. 
Imagine then dropping your keys in a pitch black room and then trying to find them by following your sense of smell. How would that go? You're scrabbling on your hands and knees, completely blind, sniffing and sniffing at the floor, hunting for your keys. You will never do it, will you? Unless someone places them in your hands, you will never find them. It's a way of searching that just cannot get you the thing you're looking for. And that is Nicodemus. He cannot see the kingdom of God without finding it in an entirely different way. Someone else needs to deliver him into it, heart and mind and will. He has to be remade so that to subvert the the language of our own culture, Nicodemus becomes his dead name, an old man. The truth then that we're being taught here, and it's a hard truth, is that our fallen human natures and the Messiah's kingdom just do not go together. No matter how hard we try to push them together, no matter how much we wish they would, they repel each other like a Brussels sprouts and a six-year-old boy repel each other. Even if you force it in, he will only choke it out. Nothing is going to make him swallow it. Even if you coat it in sugar... He has dug his heels in so hard now, hasn't he, that you will never win that battle. It is viscerally incompatible. Because it's not just his taste buds that are against it now, it is his whole nature. Everything about him needs to change. And the shock here is that that is not simply the people who are vocally hostile to Christianity. That is not just the people who despise God and all of us. No, It is even those of us who seem interested, keen. Martin Luther put it like this, it is not a question of what we must do, but what we must become. And if that was true for a man like Nicodemus with all his decency and kindness and standing in the community, then what hope is there for any of us? Jesus' language is universal, isn't it? Unless anyone is born from above, he cannot see my kingdom. Whoever we are, the night claims us. And it means, verses 4 to 8, that only Christ's spirit can change us. Just think how discouraging, utterly discouraging, Jesus' words must have been to Nicodemus so far. Lots of us know, don't we, what it's like to wait for a baby to arrive. Some of us are waiting right now. And the last few weeks of that are literally unbearable. Most mothers get to a point where they feel they literally cannot go another day longer. And yet they have to. We tried everything. We tried curries. We tried spicier curries. We tried long walks. We tried pineapple. We tried raspberry leaf tea. That was the one that people swore by. And the truth is, it was all completely useless. You could shout at an expectant mum until you were blue on, in the face saying, go on, give birth now. It's not going to happen, is it? The reality is there is nothing you can do for yourself to make it happen when you want it to happen. The baby's going to come when the baby's going to come. And even then, one way or another, the baby is going to come someday. That's not Nicodemus, is it? He isn't even being told, give birth. He has to be born. 
Try doing that on demand. Almost all of us have grown children or parents or friends who we long would come to faith. And yet we know, don't we, that even if they wanted to, they can't just flick on a switch. One thing just isn't possible, and that is giving birth to spiritual life in yourself. You cannot give birth to yourself. And so Nicodemus asks the question that I am absolutely sure we'd all ask. How can I possibly do that? But there's something in how poor Nicodemus even asks the question, which takes us right to the heart of his problem. You see, what Jesus said in verse 3 is that you must be born anothane. If you've got to look at the little footnote in your Bible, you'll see that's a Greek word that is hard to pin down. We can't know for sure what language Jesus and Nicodemus actually spoke. There's decent evidence he would have been trilingual. But John has passed this story down to us in Greek, and John has chosen a Greek word that is deliberately ambiguous. Every other time he uses it in the book, it means something like from above, which is what he told us right at the beginning, isn't it? Jesus came to his own people. He gave them the right to become children of God, born not of our own will, nor of the will of a human father, but born of God, born from above. But that same word, anathen, can also mean something like a second time, again. And obviously, given the context here, both of those things must be true. To be born from above is being born a second time, being remade inside as a whole new person. But do you notice how Nicodemus does what human beings are constantly doing in John's gospel? He hears Jesus speak a spiritual truth, and almost comically he understands it on a physical, human level. How on earth can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? He assumes that meaning, doesn't he? We saw the same thing last week, didn't we, when they were talking about the temple. They assumed Jesus meant the building. He was talking about his own resurrected body. Well, Nicodemus' whole tragic problem is that he's still asking about what he can do to make it happen when the answer is plainly nothing. Here is a man who has devoted his whole life to growing in holiness, to learning the scriptures, to living in a way that meant he was separated from anything sinful. That's what it meant to be a Pharisee. To realize that seeing God's kingdom is completely out of his hands, that would be the death of his whole identity. He literally needs to become a new person. And so Jesus' answer to him once again in verse 5 stresses the negative, doesn't it? You cannot. It is not possible, my friend. We get it again in verse 6. Flesh can only give birth to flesh. Your problem is not a dead body. It's that you're spiritually dead. When Jesus' kingdom is a realm of spiritual life, and so like every fallen human being cut off from God by our sin, we are banished from that realm of life. Unless that life is born in us by water and spirit, wonderfully, God is a God willing to do for us freely, kindly, sovereignly 
what we could never do for ourselves. Now, I take it that water there in verse 5 is a picture of cleansing, partly because that's how it's been used already. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance from sin, which water was used into picture that sin being washed away, cleansing. And we are told that when Jesus came, he would do it for real, cleansing our hearts through the baptism of his spirit. I don't think, by the way, Jesus is talking directly here about Christian baptism, but he is talking about the same reality that our baptism pictures and promises. For new life to be born in us, two things have to happen simultaneously. They aren't separate things. They're two sides of the same coin. It's one new birth involving both things. Our sinful nature needs to be washed away. Everything wrong that we've ever thought or said and done and who we are in ourselves, it needs to be washed away. And by God's spirit, a new nature has to take hold. Our hearts have to be completely remade. And the reason I'm fairly sure that is the right way to understand those two words, water and spirit, is that Jesus tells Nicodemus in verse 7 that he shouldn't be surprised to hear this stuff. The very Bible that Nicodemus taught tells us that a truly cleansed heart is a work only God's spirit can do. The clearest place that we see that is the passage we use for our call to worship, Ezekiel chapter 36. You can turn it up quickly if you'd like, page 724. It's a passage written to a whole nation who are spiritually dead banished from the Holy Land, lost in sin, and God's glory, his presence has left them. They are spiritually dead. And then in verse 25, he promises the cleansing. I shall sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. And then in verse 26, we get the new heart as God's spirit is put within them. And then right after that, right after the water and spirit chapter, we get the new birth chapter in chapter 37, when a bunch of dead, rotten bones that quite literally couldn't lift a finger are raised to new life. Another picture of the same thing. And that is not what Nicodemus wants to hear, is it? That is not the answer he's looking for. And perhaps if you're here, wishing that you were closer to God, wondering if you could ever be a new Christian. Perhaps the answer that you cannot do that for yourself is not the answer you want to hear either. Only God can change you by washing you clean and putting his spirit in your heart. It might not be what you want to hear, but it's what you need to hear. We are as powerless to understand or manipulate this as we are to understand or manipulate the wind. Both the wind and the spirits, John tells us, they blow where they wish. It's the same Greek word for both. And that wind is powerful enough to sometimes knock us right over. It can move whole great big ships from one continent to another. But we don't have a clue how it works, do we? Or when it will come, or where it comes from. We can't whistle for it. And so it is with the secret work of God in renewing a human heart. 
almost everyone that I've seen come to faith has come out of absolutely nowhere. And I would love to pretend it was wonderful preaching that did it or the wonderful friendly welcome we gave folk or the thoughtful appealing church that we are. But we know, don't we, it's none of those things. When it happens, God simply hands it to us on a plate and we can look back and see all the means that he used, the faithful parents, a praying friend, a brave evangelist. But we can't conjure it up any more than we can conjure up the wind. We can't predict it. We know it's real though, don't we? We feel its force. And so what are we to do? What is Nicodemus meant to do? The point is surely to make him realize that the answer is not in his own flesh. It is impossible. Whoever we are, the night claims us. Only Christ's spirit can change us. So verses 9 to 15 cry to the one sent to save us. Surely that is why Jesus is telling him all this. Nicodemus, cry out to me. I alone know the way to new life and I alone can make it possible. Well, the poor guy has one last attempt to ask what Jesus is talking about before he simply fades out of the scene and we're left to wonder what, if anything, has lodged in his heart. But I wonder if you noticed a slightly peculiar thing this time about Jesus' answer. You, my friend, for all your Bible teaching, have not understood your Bible at all, but we speak of what we know. Who is we? Well, there's all sorts of possibilities, good possibilities. It could be the plural of majesty, like Queen Victoria's we. It could mean me and the prophets, or me and later on my disciples. That fits with how this book develops. Or given what he's about to say about the mission he shares with the Father and the Spirit in saving mankind, it could be a bigger we still. Jesus speaks as the voice of God, the Trinity. They're all possible. I think the better question is why? Why does he speak like this? I wonder if it rings any bells that we know. Think of how Nicodemus first came to him earlier that night, up in verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. And now Jesus replies, teacher, you don't know a thing, but we know. You see the point? This man is lost in the darkness, but there is one who can take him by the hand and lead him into truth. One with intimate, first-hand knowledge. He's seen what he's talking about, verse 11. It is judicially valid testimony. And yet Nicodemus is culpably unwilling to accept it. Last Saturday afternoon, I was subjected to 90 minutes of watching hearts play football for the sake of one obsessive daughter. And there were kids all around us in the stadium doing what every passionate child does at every football match, as if they were the first fan ever to suffer such outrageous injustice. They were screaming at the ref and calling him blind. It is such a cliche, isn't it? 
Every child at every football match seems to do it once, but a blind referee just really winds us up. Jesus says, wait a minute. That's all of you. That's you, Nicodemus, a corrupt judge, because a true witness is here, one who knows intimately what he's talking about, and you won't receive him. It's not simply that you can't understand, it's that you won't. And so Nicodemus has to leave behind all of his we knows and listen to Jesus we know. All of his fleshly, human knowledge and achievements have to go, and he needs what only Jesus can give him. The very best way for God to work in our hearts is simply to stop kicking and screaming and listen to Jesus speak. So far, Jesus has told him earthly things, which seems strange to us, doesn't it? What is more spiritual, heavenly than the new birth? But it is something that happens to us here on earth in our fallen, rebellious human hearts. The earthly things are everything he said so far about the human condition, which makes this regeneration, this new birth, our only hope. Whereas the heavenly things, I think, are everything he's going to come on to say about the mission of the Father, Son, and Spirit in making that new birth possible. Only Jesus can show us those. None of us, verse 13, have ever gone up to heaven and looked around. None of us know not only the human heart, but the heart of God inside out. Only the one sent from the Father's heart of love to bring us home to himself. And so if we want to ascend to heaven, he has to bring us. He is the guide and he is the guarantee. The one who by his death on the cross makes that new birth possible. And so verse 14 at last gives Nicodemus the answer to his questions. Do you see it? How is this possible? The Son of Man must be lifted up. The story behind that verse is one of those brilliantly kind of weird and sticky Old Testament stories from Numbers chapter 21. I don't know why we don't have stained glass windows of this one all over the place. The kids would love it. Dead snakes on sticks. It's brilliant. Israel are in their grumpy wilderness phase, moaning about Moses, God's prophet, priest, and king. Maybe already there's a little picture there of Nicodemus. And when God has enough, he curses the people with venomous snakes. It's a death sentence for sinners. But they repent and Moses prays for them and God offers a cure. Put a statue of a snake speared on a big spike where everyone can see it. And if anyone is bitten... Let him look at that. Look at what you deserve. The curse lifted up high and you will live. Death is the cure. Death is the means God used to give sinners new life. In their case, new physical life. So you see what Jesus is saying? What are we by nature when we're born into this world, we are like snake-bitten sinners, 
dead men walking. We have the same venom creeping through our veins, slowly poisoning our heart, the same helplessness as them, the same urgency as them, the same need for new life as them, spiritual life. And only when Jesus dies, the curse and death that holds these natures of ours, can we be given new life. Nicodemus needs to see what only the cross can show him. That is where God's heavenly things are on display. It is the cross, above all, where Jesus is our great guide, being lifted up in John. It always has a kind of double meaning. It's how Jesus talks about his death on the cross, but it's also how he hints about his glory, his ascension and return to his Father in heaven. When I'm lifted up on the cross, Nicodemus, then you'll see heavenly things. And I guess Jesus knows that Nicodemus would be there firsthand to see it with his own eyes. Isn't that a thought? Maybe here he tells him just enough so that then, at last, he'll understand. It's at the cross and only at the cross where Jesus is the guarantee. He makes this new birth possible by providing the water which washes us clean, dying the death that this first birth of ours was always heading towards. A new reborn nature, he's saying, is only possible by my death and ascent to the Father, which you must receive by faith when the Spirit works in your heart to make you believe it. So look at the Son of Man, lifted up. That is all you can do and cry out to me. We don't receive this new birth by trying to manufacture some special experience of the Spirit. We can't manufacture it. We don't need to whip ourselves up into an emotional frenzy in church to make the Spirit come to us because we cannot manipulate the wind. It's not great signs and wonders that we need to bring faith, real faith, because many believe because of that stuff. They believed in his name as a powerful worker of miracles. But what they needed was to believe in him as the one lifted up in weakness for dying sinners. You see, the work of the Spirit and the work of the Son are two things that we can never divorce Look with faith at the sun lifted up and it's his Holy Spirit that we receive in our hearts instantly. Receive new life in the Spirit and it's the crucified son that he joins us to instantly. His death and his life become ours. And just look at the wonderful, wonderful words in that final promise of verse 15. Whoever, whoever we are, the night claims us, but whoever we are, we can cry to this one sent to save us. Nobody is too blind or too bad, too stubborn or too stupid. Nobody. This is one of those passages that always triggers all sorts of worries in us, isn't it? What if I'm still a Nicodemus? Have I had my heart transplanted? 
It's not like our old nature just crawls away to die as soon as a new one's born. And so sometimes we feel that and we worry more than we ought to worry. But perhaps some of us here need the challenge. Perhaps we never have had that rebirth and been brought to the point where his cross is everything for us. Well, either way, it's the same place we have to look, isn't it? The one lifted up for us. You can't do it for yourself, but he can. So cry out to him. Cry out to him for your husband, for your wandering teenage son, for your friend who loves a religious chat but never faces the challenge. If we haven't prayed for them, we haven't even begun to evangelize, have we? So let's be crying out together as a family for the ones we love that he would restore their hearts and make them true Christians. And let's be crying out with joy for the new life that he's given to us, each of us. There's only one thing better in this world than holding a newborn baby, and that is hugging a newborn Christian. Isn't that wonderful? Just as a parent or a friend or a pastor somewhere once had the joy of hugging us through God's mercy, seeing new life born, let's cry out for that. Well, before I lead us in prayer, why don't we each have a moment's quiet and ask once again for the people who are most on our hearts that they might be part of this great whoever, not because of what we can do for them, but what Jesus alone can make them in his grace. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of Man, lifted up for us by your Holy Spirit and in your sheer grace, come and do what we could never do. Take these hearts of sin and death and make them alive. We praise you, Lord, for the miraculous life you have created in each one of us who trusts you. Would that impossible thing encourage us, we pray, that you might do the impossible once again for those on our hearts. Like the wind, send your spirit out of nowhere, powerful, sovereign, wonderful, and grow this family of your grace. For we ask it to the praise of your glorious gospel. Amen.